And welcome to season three of Public Health Disrupted with me, Zand Van Tulliken. And me, Rochelle Burgess. Zand is a doctor, writer, and TV presenter, and I'm a community health psychologist and associate professor at the UCL Institute for Global Health. Now, this podcast is about public health. More importantly, it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. So join us each month as we challenge the status quo of the public health field, asking what needs to change, why, and how to get there. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring sexual attitudes and behaviors, how they're changing, and asking the question, what's really going on behind closed doors? I'm going to try not to sing that uh, salt and pepper song from the 90s. But that's all that's been playing in my head in the lead up to preparing for this episode, because we're basically doing that. We're, we're talking about sex. And there are lots of myths. Do you know the song? I mean, I know the song. I'm just Let's talk about sex, baby. You promised you wouldn't. <laughs> and then I did it. I know. I know. It's fair use. I think we can get the permissions. <laughs> there are lots of myths and misunderstandings about sex, and it can be tricky to get to the truth. So what does the average British person think about sex and what are their experience of it? Well, other than you singing that song, it would be incredible <laughs> if there was a way to find out what is an incredibly kind of intimate, difficult form of knowledge to get hold of. And amazingly, there is. So we are introducing the National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, the NATSAL. And the NATSAL are among the largest surveys of sexual behavior in the world. It was initiated uh, in the mid-1980s in response to the emerging HIV epidemic, with the first surveys run in 1990. It's taken place every 10 years since then. Uh, the surveys use a probability sampling method to randomly select people from across Britain to take part, which which means that the results are broadly representative of the British general population. So far, over 45,000 people have taken part in NatSAL. The surveys are administered by an interviewer face-to-face -face in the participant's home. It's a computer-assisted interview with self-completion sections used for more sensitive topics. And the consistent methodology and repetition of the surveys have made it possible to capture striking changes in the sexual behavior, attitudes, and healthcare behavior of people born over much of the 20th century. So helping us to understand the vast kind of fascination of this and usefulness and why it's so important are today's experts, Prof. Kath Mercer and David Spiegelholder. And Kath Mercer, who I am lucky enough to know already, is a professor of sexual health science at UCL and co-lead of UCL Center for Population Research in Sexual Health and HIV. A statistician and demographer by training, Kath is recognized internationally as an expert in developing and employing robust methods that advance the study of sexual behavior, one of the most socially sensitive areas of scientific inquiry. For more than 20 years, Kath has played a key role in delivering Britain's NATSAL study, and she is now co-leading the fourth NATSAL. Kath also champions myth-busting and promoting the public conversations around sex, including, rather nerve-wrackingly, through stand-up comedy sets for UCL's Bright Club, which I did not know about, Kath, and now you will see me there. 
And her TED Talk, Let's Talk About Real Sex. So Kath knows the song already. So I'm sure she enjoyed that thing. (laughs) (laughs) You're sure, are you? You're absolutely sure. sure. (laughs) She smiled. I saw it. (laughs) Well, our other incredible guest is David Spiegelhalter, who is Emeritus Professor of Statistics in the Centre for Mathematical Sciences at the University of Cambridge. He was previously chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication, which aimed to improve the way that statistical evidence is used by lawyers, professionals, patients, lawyers, judges, media and policymakers. He was very busy over the COVID crisis, not least because he was constantly being interviewed by me and my brother in the documentaries that we were making, which he was endlessly helpful about, and then churning out articles, podcasts and so on, which over my career and particularly during COVID really helped me and so many broadcasters uh, communicate evidence to the public and understand it ourselves, I will say. He presented the BBC Four documentaries, Tales You Win, The Science of Chance, the award-winning climate change by numbers. His best-selling book, The Art of Statistics, was published in March 2019. I highly recommend it. And COVID by Numbers came out in September 21. His career highlights include, I don't know if you'd listen, I guess this is a career highlight, appearing on Desert Island Discs in 2022. Yeah. I don't believe one of your discs was Let's Talk About Sex by Salt and Pepper, um, but you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. <laughs> and in 2011, he came seventh in an episode of BBC One's Winter Wipeout. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Just so that listeners know, David pulled an amazing facial expression when recalling his BBC One winter wipeout triumph. Um, <laughs> Kath, can I, can I start with you, though? Because the, the British National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles is, I think, just so intriguing to so many people because it allows us access to information that you can't get from anyone maybe other than yourself or you're maybe the people you're most intimate with can you tell us more about it why it's so important scientifically absolutely so as we said just now the idea of having a nationally representative sex survey began really back in the mid 80s with the emergence of hiv and aids because back then there was this realization that that we really didn't have reliable data with which to inform a public health response. You know, back then we really didn't know who was at risk or more specifically what kinds of behaviour put people at an increased risk of HIV. Indeed, the the Tombstone Don't Die of Ignorance campaign that I'm sure many will remember was initially targeted to the population as a whole, which obviously caused alarm for many people. And Personally, I remember coming home from school, secondary school, I hasten to add, and sat on the doormat was the, the tombstone leaflet that had been sent to every household across the country. And I just remember thinking, that's it. We're, we're all doomed by this thing called HIV. But as we came to learn our individual behaviours and also those of our sexual partners mean that HIV risk varies hugely across the population. And and that learning was was largely influenced by the findings from the first National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, or or NATSAL for short. Although the first NATSAL study team, led by UCL's Anne Johnson, didn't exactly have an easy journey in getting the first NATSAL up and running. So despite having done a pilot study that demonstrated that doing a survey like NATSAL was largely acceptable with the British public, and the, the scientific community's call for robust evidence on HIV risk 
and the government agreeing to fund the first NATSAR study at the 11th hour, so just as the main study was due to be fielded in September 1989, the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, pulled the plug on the government's promise of funding NATSAR because Thatcher thought it would, quote, invade the privacy of those due to be questioned. So a story that made the front page of the Sunday Times, no less. But fortunately, the Wellcome Trust stepped in with the funding so that the first NATSAL study could and did go ahead in 1990 with nearly 19,000 people aged 16 to 59 randomly selected from across Britain completing around about an hour-long interviewer-administered survey that asked participants questions about their, their sexual attitudes and behaviours relating to, at the time, hypothesised HIV risk. Now, the findings from Natsal Worm were initially published in the journal Nature in 1992, but went on to be absolutely key for, for shaping HIV public health policy and practice in the UK and internationally too. But that's not the end of Natsal's story. As by the mid-90s, it had become apparent that actually Natsal's data were incredibly helpful for understanding the epidemiology and public health implications of sexually transmitted infections, STIs, including, but not just, HIV. But also that the data from the first NATSAL were, were getting outdated. And so a second NATSAL survey was proposed and then carried out at the start of the millennium. And then a third survey in 2010. And we're now currently fielding the fourth NATSAL survey with each round of the survey having a widening remit in how sexual and reproductive health are conceptualised. So, so these days in the latest NATSAL, we're asking about behaviours relating to STIs, pregnancy, sexual function and sexual violence, although intersectionality means that often these behaviours and outcomes are related. And crucially, as we said right at the start, each survey has been based on the methodology used for the very first NATSAL, such as many of the questions included in that first survey still being asked in 2023, which means that we can make valid comparisons when we examine how behaviour and sexual reproductive health have changed over time. So in a nutshell, for over 30 years, NATSAL has provided robust evidence of the context, the influences and consequences of sexual lifestyles in Britain, and as such has been vital for informing intervention strategies and guidelines, including the National Chlamydia Screening Programme, HPV vaccination policy, the teenage pregnancy strategy, to name just three, as well as advancing the science of and also the public dialogue around sex and sexual health. Can you just give us a little bit more of a sense of what it means to try and get this information out of people, how sensitive <laughs> it is? Because your story about Margaret Thatcher is amazing in terms of, a, a, you know, a politician's, I suppose she, she dressed it up as privacy, but we can imagine it may well have been her prudishness or squeamishness about the topic in general. What are the barriers and how, how do you get this detail out of people? Well, that's that's a really good question because, you know, how do we get people to open up about something that is hugely personal, often socially sensitive, sometimes a taboo? As a study team, we, we go to great lengths to enable participants to answer the questions in that cell as honestly 
and as accurately as they can. So this includes even how we sell the survey. So in the participant-facing literature, on the NATSAL website, and so on, so that potential participants realize that this isn't, this isn't any old sex survey. It, it's not a sex survey that they might see in a tabloid newspaper or in a magazine you know, out to sensationalize, but that NATSAL is a genuine scientific study of sexual behavior that seeks to be so scientifically rigorous that in fact, NATSAL only takes place once a decade, if you like, you know, a sex census. And because of this, NATSAL's findings are, yeah, as I said, hugely important for health policy and practice, which is, is something that we convey to participants when we invite them to, to participate. We also have to think very carefully about how we collect the data, especially for, for the more sensitive questions that a sex survey like NATSAL needs to ask. So, so this includes using show cards with response codes so that participants can just give a letter code rather than having to say aloud words that they may find embarrassing. And for the most sensitive questions that NATSAL asks them, NATSAL's always used a self-completion module. So the participant then reads the question themselves and types their response straight into the interviewer's laptop so the interviewer doesn't need to see or hear what they're reporting. But we, we do acknowledge, though, that, that sex lives can be complicated. And sometimes, you know, the questions that we need to ask don't work for people. So what may seem like an inconsistency for the researchers may just reflect life's complexities. I do think it's encouraging that, you know, when we hear from participants, the vast majority say that, well, yes, they, they took NASAL seriously. They realized its scientific importance. David, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what other types of evidence exists out there about people's lifestyles and sexual attitudes and how do we deal with tensions in in quality if we're collecting research from different spaces outside of the survey landscape yes yeah because I, I i'm a statistician and we you know, we count and measure things and these are very difficult things to count and measure because we kind of don't observe them directly as kath said we're largely reliant on reports now some things we can count you know there's some administrative data that is very relevant uh, for example uh, teenage conceptions that's published by the office for national statistics tells us a lot and we can count them we know that uh, in 1970 50 years ago i was just checking this 50 years ago 1973 every year one in 20 16 year old girls got pregnant in the uk isn't that extraordinary so that's you know more than one in every class got pregnant on average now it's one in a hundred these are extraordinary changes in conception. Now, how much that's a change in sexual behaviour, better access to contraception, it requires additional data from um, surveys like NATSAL. But these are extraordinary things that we can count and we can know. I wrote this book, Sex by Numbers, and I got obsessed with going back and looking at historical trends in these things. In 1938, half the brides who got married were, were pregnant, you know, anyone under 20. There's all sorts of amazing, you know, patterns of behaviour we can spot just from official statistics. But of course, some administrative statistics are not so reliable. If we look at, you know, attendances at sexual health clinics for sexually transmitted infections, we can get some good data on these and they're published. But of course, that doesn't tell us directly how many people have got sexually transmitted infections because it relies on people going to the clinic. So we have to allow for that. And when I was writing the book, I, I, I actually just introduced a star rating system. And th these ideas of, of, in a way, rating statistics or how confident you are about them 
is becoming more common across a wide range of areas. And these administrative data like teenage pregnancy rates, I put as four stars, things like NATSAL, really well done surveys, which are you know, broadly very reliable, I'd put as three star. But then you've got other, you know, not so well done. People have made an effort, but not actually that well done surveys. And then you've got ones where the surveys, you know, are just voluntary surveys, you know, right in, in you know, in, in magazines, the old height report sort of stuff where people just you know, wrote in their experiences. Well, it kind of tells you what can happen or what does happen. But in terms of quantification, it's pretty useless. And then, of course, you've got zero stars, which are numbers. They're just people make up, like men think about sex every seven seconds. You know, all this sort of nonsense, you know, stuff that people just make up as stories. And a remarkable number of claims you see in newspapers and magazines about sex are essentially made up. <laughs> I got fascinated by this um, issue of how many sexual partners people have had in their lifetime. And, um, and there you can look for some consistency, because if you're looking at opposite sex sexual partners then actually the the average in terms of the mean number of partners that a man has had, or that men have had, should be exactly the same as the average number of partners in terms of the mean that women have had, because every pair takes two. And so the average number, the total number of partnerships is, the, is constant. And one is a man, one is a woman. So the average number should be the same because they differ. Um, men, on average, report having more sexual partners than women. And a whole cath team has written whole papers about why this is the case, um, what you can do to try to avoid it, how much of this is social acceptability bias, mm. um, either by women not wanting to admit some of the relationships they've had or not consider them as, as partnerships, um, and, uh, and men, you know, some exaggerations or boasting. I think one of the interesting theories is that this is actually, a lot of this is just how people count that uh, women will be tending to enumerate their relationships by name and, and, and catching up Im images. Whereas men, it was, oh, well, about 10, 20, you know, blah. And, and you can see this by the use of, round, use of rounding in the figures that men give, you know, and women to some extent, but a lesser extent. So men will say, oh, 20, 30, 40. Exactly. I remember the Natsal survey, there's one man who said 48. So I think, you know, he's probably a statistician. I, I accept, I don't think statisticians <laughs> will have had 48 sexual partners, but never mind. <laughs> so, so there are some measures of consistency, when, and the Natsal survey, I know there's all sorts of consistency checks, both within interviews and between interviews, to try to reconcile and triangulate the different sources of information. Can I ask, I guess, the question that everyone wants to know, which is what is your best guess as to the, to the number? Well, it's a massive distribution. The, the modal number, the most, most uh, common number, is one. Is, is oh, really? Oh, yes, yeah, no, the mode is one. But then the, uh, but there's a very long tail to this distribution, so long that when I show graphs of it, I can't, I have to walk out, I just have to point out outside the room and say it goes up. <laughs> I need another projector. I'm imagining you, like, unfolding more and more, like, pieces of paper as you walk out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I, I tend to cut, cut it off at 50 to show the distribution. Oh, that's that's great. If you want to know the total number, the, the largest number reported in the last survey it was 3,200 partners. Oh! Which does sound... Well, there's clearly some evidence, some digit heaping, you know. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, was that a reporting error? Should it have been two to 300? I don't know. So, But, yeah, as, as David says, we, we, we trim so that we, we're looking at the 95 
percentile so that we yeah we can lose those where we think actually not so sure but at the same time you know these are real people's lives they're giving their time so you know the extent to which we meddle with the data uh, you know we don't we have to trust what people tell us which is why i said we talk about reported data so 3200 is the maximum one thing that just keeps popping into my mind listening to you guys talk and david your last comments that sort of highlight gender norms and how societal norms and structures and ideals really shape the way that people talk about things and report things i just wondered like how do you deal with that in terms of thinking about quality of research so if like there's spaces where you know that the norms are going to be particularly powerful in sort of potentially driving reporting bias right so then are there ways in which research studies then get identified as being of different quality because of that yeah i mean there have been some randomized trials of of asking people questions and where some people were randomized to a group where they knew the their data would be completely confidential and others to a group where they suspected somebody would see it when they picked up the piece of paper and took it to the thing and and you do get differential responses there so we know that um the, the assurance of confidentiality and all the techniques that Kath's describing are important in terms of uh, people, um, you know, accurately describing their behaviour. And of course, I suppose this gets more extreme when we get to perhaps more, um, you know, for behaviours that are maybe maybe considered, um, you know, socially, well, no, what's the word? Diverse, shall we say, as a, as a, as a nice, as a a good way of saying it. Um, and Kath, I mean, I, I don't know what you feel with the, whether now, um, um, whether this is a, a bigger issue with the range of behaviours that people have. Um, I'm thinking of things like um, whether people just saying they're asexual, for example, which has been uh, an issue that is, appears to be growing from, as one hears from reports. But again, I don't believe things until I've heard, seen a proper survey done about these about these um, uh, possible changes in behaviour. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's really interesting to to look at society more broadly and the influence that that has on people's willingness to report their sexual behaviour in a survey like Natsal, but more generally to talk about the, the the reality of their sex lives. You know, how often they have sex, how they find it. Um, I think there's just a greater acceptance for people to say you know actually we don't have sex all that often these days or when we do it's not that fantastic um and i think it just sort of reflects how people re- recognize that sex isn't perhaps the be all and end all in life or even in a relationship um um and that yeah there's there's something about just being honest you know what why lie why exaggerate you know um and I think this may also reflect, you know, the rise in online dating, where people are called to think about what kind of relationships they, 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 they're interested in. Are they looking for sex? Are they just looking for companionship? Um, and, to, you know, to be explicit about that um, on, on online dating apps and so on. Um, you know, and then when we think about, you know, what the world looks like today, um, you know, every era has its challenges, but when we think, you know, during COVID, um, what did sex lives look like then? You know, on the back of COVID, 
cost of living crisis, you know, where does sex feature in people's sort of list of priorities these days? Um, you know, if they're worried about redundancy, if they're worried about putting food on the table, you know, where does sex fit uh, in that respect? Um, and, you know, then bring in elements like um, the increasingly digital age that we live in, um, you know, the fact that we're always connected to our devices, so it seems, um, you know, we talk about um, what have, is, is the decline in the frequency of sex that we've seen over the last three rounds of NatSAO due to you know, iPads in the bedroom syndrome. So, yeah, I just think there's been a shift in, in how we view sex uh, and a shift in, in our willingness to talk about sex. Can you talk about some of the other changes um, that you might have observed? It feels like in my lifetime there has been a vast shift in the way that people have even conceived of sort of categories of sex. And as I've been teaching and working in global health, it feels like we've learned more and more about um, really quite specific details of the kinds of sex that you have and your risks of different diseases and um, how different groups of people might interact. So can you can you talk a bit more about those trends? Because that's my sense, but I haven't looked at the data. I think that's really interesting. And I think that that shift has been reflected in the NatSAL surveys over time in terms of the questions asked and the, the data that we, we, we've got in. Um, thinking about, for example, um, relationship status. The first couple of NatSALs, we just asked about marital status. So, you know, if people, if someone was legally unmarried, legally single, well, fine, but that's not to say that they weren't having sex. So it's only been in the last couple of surveys that we've actually asked people about the type, plural types of relationship that they may be in, recognizing that it's not necessarily monogamy for everyone um, and that having multiple partners is not necessarily bad in, in some people's eyes. It's, it's the sexual lifestyle that they choose. Um, a nice example of this is thinking about the question, because uh, obviously Nat's house about looking at sexual attitudes as well as behaviours. One of the questions that the first uh, couple of surveys asked was about someone's attitude towards um, sex outside of a um, married relationship. You know, did they think it was right or wrong? And there was a there's a Likert scale, so you know, always wrong through to always um, uh, right, or, or rather at least not wrong at all. So five possible response options um, to try and capture, you know, this the, uh, the society's attitude to non-exclusivity, non-exclusivity in relationships. Um, and it was it was interesting because it was in the last, it was only in that cell three that people started to sort of think, well, actually, it's not necessarily wrong if it's an open relationship where all partners are, are happy with the fact that other multiple partners involved, then then fine. So is that really a judgment as to someone's attitudes, sexual attitudes towards you know, the morality of, of monogamy or or conversely, the morality of of of, of polyamory? Um, so now in NatSAL 4, we're asking about multiple having multiple partners and the context is it in the is it in the context of swinging is it in the context of a uh, an open relationship and the extent to which partners are aware and 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 uh and okay with with that 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 relationship setup um so just you know reflecting that it's 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 not a case of you're either in a relationship or you're not or you're either married or you're not um but yeah sexual lifestyles today look 
can look very, very different. And the judgments attached to those vary across the population. And when David, David sort of earlier in his great um, way said, you know, unless unless he's seen a really good survey, he doesn't believe it with the sort of, you know, the, t- the, the claims in the newspapers saying that men think about sex every seven seconds or whatever the, the statistic is. But presumably in in designing the questions and saying, well, look, I think we'd better ask about polyamory now. You have an instinct that is gathered from, I don't know, the headlines, social media, personal experience, where you're having to gather information that is not statistical to say, look, there seem to be exploding dating apps that literally help people get into polyamorous relationships, which you didn't see a while ago. How are you led towards certain questions and how do you identify the the changing trends that you want to dig into in more detail? And a real challenge for Natsal, given how its remit has broadened from initially being of just about HIV risk um, and factoring in that um, it's, you know, we can't really have the survey taking longer than 45 minutes to an hour to complete. So given this broadening remit and this uh, broadening in the, the range of sexual health outcomes and sexual lifestyles that we're interested in, how do we shoehorn all those questions into an hour long interview? So you know, we, we consult with our, our stakeholders, so um, the people who are going to use the data, um, and we, we've asked them, we've spent a whole year having, during a development phase for, for, for this latest round, consulting stakeholders, saying, you know, what are the most important issues? What are the questions that Natsal needs to ask? We did flag up, but it needs to fit within an hour. So, you know, let us know what can go. <laughs> and, and just we had all these additional questions. We want to ask about this, 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 this. this. What should go? Oh, nothing. Because <laughs> you know? it's all interesting. Really? So it's, it's, it's really challenging to, you know, to address everything. But that's where we need to think, well, what's NatSAL's USP? You know, what can NatSAL tell us that other studies can't or other data sources can't? Um, and I think for, for NatSAL, for example, um, looking at uh, – um, same-sex relationships. NASA has a key role in providing the population prevalence estimate of, say, men who have sex with men. You know, um, we can't get that from convenience surveys. We can't get that from routine data. But NASA perhaps isn't the place to, to dig down and, and to understand the complexities of um, relationships, same-sex relationships. We can perhaps leave that to a community-based survey of gay men. But NATSA can provide the headline stats. And so that's, that's, you know, that's the kind of decision-making process we're going through. Is like, you know, is it about depth or is it about the breadth of the survey? And I think NATSA's role is providing the breadth, but then thinking about how we link in with other data sources to enhance and enrich what NATSA tells us. So if you like, NATSA is the, at the core, and then we can link in with other data sources. My question for you, David, I just wondered if you could reflect a little bit on, on how public health messaging might need to look or shift or change in order to keep up with all of these differences in behaviors and practices that we're, we're seeing. Oh, if you're talking about disruption, I'm very disruptive when it comes to public health messaging, because I'm, I'm a slightly sort of... Um, you know, a bit extremist on this because I don't like public health, mes- the idea of public health messaging. I'm against it on the whole. Because the Winton Centre, I was chair for five years, really developed this idea of um, that we, for trustworthy communication, you should be informing and not persuading. That actually 
trying to do messaging, which is trying to make people do something or think something, manipulate their emotions in order to make them frightened. The tombstone stuff, that ghastly AIDS advert there, the awful stuff that came out during COVID, look into his eyes, you know, trying to induce fear in the group of people. This backfires all the time. So those fear-based messages... I think are disastrous and actually unethical, deeply unethical. And all the evidence suggests that the messaging where you actually give a balanced view of the situation, of the benefits and harms of certain behaviours, of what, what, what can be, uh, you know, the positives and negatives and so on. Uh, the evidence suggests that, especially for people who are more hard to reach, they find that much more trustworthy and much more likely to listen to it. And, that, and there's, we've done in randomized trials. Others have shown this as well. Empirical evidence that this is important. So actually, I think that's why the statistics are so vital in the, I, what I believe public health messaging should be about. It is about informing people and telling people what goes on, of what the possible harms can be of, of behaviours, but not to make out that these behaviours, as Kath said, people have got a very broad view of, of that. People do these things for a reason, you know, because they might actually enjoy them. <laughs> so so you know, just to try to condemn certain behaviours is, uh, I think, a, a really anachronistic way to, to go about this. So I, I strongly believe, and I think there is good evidence for this, that in public health messaging, one should be trying to inform people. Now, we know that just informing people tends not to change behaviours, because that's not the intention, really. At the same time, I think it's absolutely essential that any messaging like that is accompanied by information about services available to people and and that's you know the whole reason behind NATSA was about providing sexual health services and, and still is and so I think that you know adv adv the advocacy and the in a way the persuasion that might be necessary is that to get people engaged with the fact that there is our services available and to um, suggest that they could take advantage of these if they if they wanted to so I, I'm, uh, I, I think the whole basis of public health messaging needs really great clarity about what attitude are you, are you just trying to persuade people? In which case, what are you doing? Are you just giving one side of the picture? Are you, are you, are you using all those manipulative tricks that advertisers do, fear, reassurance, and so on? Or are you actually trying to inform the public better? The public have a right to good information. Um, I, I'm afraid, I, I, as I said, if, we, if this is a disruptive podcast, this is one place where I am like to be try to be disruptive. Well, we do want to end on on disruption. You both led public health in hugely disruptive ways and and pushed against the norms or the or the lack of interest in in these topics in incredible ways we ask every every guest about this um do you have a piece of art or a piece of music a piece of poetry something in your life that you look to that you found disruptive that's inspirational for me, it, it was a tapestry that my mum made for me of, of one of our dogs, Casper, um, which at first glance looks like a photo. But because Casper was a golden retriever, when you look up close, you can see many different colours. So, you know, different shades of yellow, gold, orange, red and so on. Sometimes a very different coloured stitches next to one another but still contributing to the picture of Casper as a whole and I find this idea helpful for thinking about you know the tapestry of evidence that we need to understand sexual health across the population often what's what seem like different elements that we might treat in, in silos actually you know how they relate to 
to one another and also then how sexual health fits into the big picture of health and well-being you know sexual health is part of us you know it's part of our general health and well-being but I also like this idea of having different bits of evidence different sources of evidence whether that's NATSAL you know routine clinic data census data qualitative data that by themselves are interesting and colorful but together enable us to have a better understanding of the, the picture of the whole so yeah it's my tapestry of casper the dog oh that's so amazing that's lovely david what about you yeah, I've been thinking about this as well. Um, is music for me, uh, as as you mentioned, I did Desert Island Discs. This mm. made me think about it quite a lot about influences in my life, and I realised that the very strong influences are are music, and particularly what I might call, you know, socially um, not I wouldn't say unacceptable, but you know, music music by people that sort of pushes the boundaries a bit. You know, whether whether it's the Pogues with the drinking, whether it's Levellers, you know, all this sort of quite loud, you know, raucous stuff, but also Leonard Cohen who I think has got a wonderful attitude to age. You know, I'm old now, 69. I'm, you know, so I need to think about what it's like to be aging. And and I and I like highly emotional music with foreign with female singers and things like that. So, and all these things are, I have to, for me, what it's given me is, is an inspiration because I'm a naturally quite cautious English person to take more risks, that we should be out there, that we shouldn't be unashamed about enjoying ourselves and having fun. And that, um, you know, and the whole tapestry of human behavior is is glorious and is made me really, as I might have put it, you know, um, uh, suggested earlier, really fed up with finger wagging public health messaging that we all should be not drinking, not smoking, not doing anything. And I, I think I've been influenced a lot by the, by this music that actually we have a right to you know, live our lives as we want. You know, as we want to, oh, Dana, I remember when I was 16 listening to um, yeah, Jimi Hendrix in Axis Bold of Love, just saying, I'm the one who's got to die when it's time for me to die. Let me live my life the way I want to. And I was so influenced by that when I was, I think, 15. It has never, ever left me. I still think about that. And so uh, that's why I really revel in the sort of surveys that Kath is doing, because it's exploring the whole tapestry of human behavior without moral judgment, with a genuine interest that everyone's lives are important, what they choose to do. And uh, we should be very, very reluctant to wag our fingers and say people shouldn't be doing these things. I love that. With, of course, the normal constraints about not harming other people. You're the kind of rock and rollers of, of epidemiology and, and surveys. I love it. It's, it's really, it really has like, it has lit up my morning talking to you about it, both the methods, the conclusions, and just both of your inherent kind of joy and curiosity about it all. It's, it's a brilliant collision of worlds, the sort of the bedroom or not even necessarily the bedroom, but but whatever goes on privately and then and then the ways we can all understand and learn from it so thank you both very much those are lovely disruptive thoughts to end with yeah really beautiful thank you both it was fantastic great see thank you so much that's a lot of fun thank you you've been listening to public health disrupted this episode was presented by me rochelle burgess and zan van Teleken, produced by ucl health public and edited by annabelle buckland at decibel creative our thanks again to today's amazing guests, 
Pat Mercer and David Spiegelhalter. If you'd like to hear more of these fascinating discussions from UCL Health of the Public, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Come and discover more online and keep up with the school's latest news, all our events and research. Just Google UCL Health of the Public. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.